Welcome back, dear listeners, to the Dish with Dina podcast. I'm so happy to have you join us again. This is a bonus episode taken from a live interview I conducted during National Eating Disorders Awareness Week back in February 2021. I had the pleasure of speaking with Erin and Trisha, two Asian American women who shared not only their personal stories with their own eating disorders, but also discussed the cultural juxtaposition of growing up in a society that honors slimmer bodies. Please consider this a trigger or content warning if you are sensitive to the discussion revolving around eating disorders and listen at your own discretion. Please sit back, enjoy the conversation, and let's dish. Welcome, Trisha and Erin. This would have been an Instagram Live for a Wellness Wednesday interview with both of you, but logistically speaking, we were not able to do that. So we're switching off to do a live discussion for all three of us to be on at the same time. So I'm gonna start with just asking you to introduce yourselves, but I also, for anyone who doesn't know me, I'm Dina Bellisandro. I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist in New York City. I run a very part-time private practice and a virtual online platform that's called Dish with Dina. And I do a lot of stuff on social media, this being one of those things where I like to introduce and talk to people about certain topics. So in our cases here, we are focusing specifically this is being recorded now um, in February. And so the week that this will be out there and airing is National Eating Disorders Awareness Week in the States. And I believe maybe even well, it's National Eating Disorder, so it would be the States, but I'm sure that there are other things across the world as well that recognize this. So Trisha, would you like to introduce yourself? And then I'll go to Erin. Hi, I'm Trisha. And uh, I went to an, inter- an international school in China, and that gave me sort of an odd perspective because when I stepped into school, that was a totally different world and that had different expectations of me than when I was at home. I think one of the things that makes me me is that I've lived across different cultures. Um, I was born in Singapore, then I spent much of my adolescence in China and then um, now I'm here in the United States. I think that definitely impacted my relationship with food and how I saw myself. So I'm really excited to talk about that today. And Erin uh, will introduce herself, but we've been friends for a long time and we were in touch throughout a lot of our struggles together in the realm of like disordered eating and eating disorders. So very excited to have this conversation, Dina and Erin. Okay, awesome. Um, so hi, I'm Erin. Um, I'm 21, 22 actually, I just turned 22. Um, and I go to school at Occidental College, um, but like Trisha, I used to go to an international school in Shanghai, um, specifically SAS. Um, so yeah, I think both me and Trisha have similar backgrounds in that we went both went to international school, yet like our the way we were raised in our family, like the culture is completely different. Um, so the fact that we were exposed to both American and Chinese culture, I think really shaped the way we are as people, but also like the way we relate to food as well and also our bodies. Um, and on the side, I run like a little food account. Um, I try to be and spread a lot of body, body positively messages, um, specifically regarding the Asian community because there is a significant lack of um, representation and diversity um, in that area. So yeah, I'm excited to talk to you guys and share more about my experiences. 
Me too. And so just to give everybody an idea of what's going on in the world. So Trisha and I are both on the East Coast, New York, New York City, and Aaron is calling in live from Shanghai, correct? Correct. Yeah, quite the international thing going on here. So Trisha, do you mind sharing just a little bit too before we even start? Because, you know, we have talked a little bit before our, conver our, our conversation here. My family is uh, from Italy. My mom and dad were born in Italy. I was born here in America, so I'm first generation. And so I'm interested to see how all of our lives might be somewhat similar or different or some comparisons there. But before we launch into something as sensitive a discussion as eating disorders are, um, I know you mentioned you might want to just do a little disclaimer first, just to you know share about our experiences and what the viewers might be able to um, keep in mind. Yes. So Aaron and I have both struggled with uh, different eating disorders. That comes with a unique set of challenges while also growing up across different cultures, but um, we want to talk specifically about what it's like to grow up in an Asian household while struggling with an eating disorder and having a Western perspective on that. And we want to be candid in how that impacted um, either the treatment we did get or didn't get. But we understand that, first of all, this isn't everyone's experience. And also, we're not trying to bash the Asian culture. This is just what we've been through. So Erin, I'm, I'm not sure how much you know about me, but I'm, a, I'm an adjunct lecturer at one of the colleges here. And one of the uh, classes that I teach is called Food Society and Health. And we go globally around the whole world, you know, and, and look at people's food ways and cultures. And it really is so different, whether you're growing up in Africa or down in the Caribbean or in China as to how people consider your body image and the way that you are eating or not eating correctly in that way. And we also sometimes you know, share stories of when I was, not me myself, but when one of my students was pregnant, if you know somebody had some comments to make that you're eating too much or too little for your child. It's just so weird at how um, some people, I guess, don't necessarily uh, understand the backgrounds of, of people's cultures and, and how our experiences growing up could positively or negatively affect our formative years and as an adult as well. So whoever wants to go first, if you want to share a little bit about your, your current, you know, your history of where things maybe took place for you and when you started recognizing some of the issues you were having. Okay, cool. Um, so I would definitely say, this is actually really funny because I've been thinking about it today. And the first really big sign that I, um, realized I kind of had like a little bit of a disordered eating or eating disorder problem I actually told Trisha about it <laughs> which is really funny and ironic um but I remember distinctly it was seventh grade I downloaded my fitness pal on my phone that wretched app <laughs> never again um but yeah I was seventh grade I wanted to like really lose weight because I was on a swim team and my mom basically made a lot of comments as to like my shoulders were too broad. I was like really bulky. And I started swimming a lot slower than other people because I was getting weight, um, just like adolescence, you know, like your, your, your body is changing. Um, so a lot of my motive when I first downloaded MyFitnessPal was to lose weight. And oh my gosh, I cannot, I cannot begin to describe <laughs> the um, rabbit hole I really went down because as I started tracking my calories and like weighing myself every day, it just got excessively really, really bad um, to the point where I was like being very competitive with myself. Um, and I would try to like eat as less as I could um, every single day. And then 
I got to a point where I got just really fed up with it. I was like, this is, I'm, I'm so done. It's like really boring and like wasting so much of my time. And then I remember I started eating a lot and like a lot, a lot. And I told Trisha, I was like, I think I have like binge eating disorder or something. Because I just like could not stop eating. Um, and as that happened, I was gaining weight, of course, like the overshoot weight. Um, and as I was going through that, um, I, I ended up deleting my fit fitness pal. I was like, no more, I can't take this anymore. Um, so after that experience, I think that was like definitely my first time I really had a very toxic relationship with food in my body. Um, and then it just got, it got a lot better. It got a lot worse when I went to college. Um, and because I was moving across the country, I was going to an environment that I was very, very not used to. I wasn't sure what the food was going to be like. I wasn't sure like um, what I was going to get like at school, like what kind of food I'm going to be eating because it would be very different from what I had at home. The first thing on my mind when I went into college was I want to avoid the freshman 15. And that was a very, very, very big goal of mine. Um, and so during my first year of college, I was very like focused, hyper-focused on food, um, especially since, as I said, like I wasn't familiar with the food I was eating, even though it's like stuff like salads, pasta, like um, like tacos, like I don't eat that like at, in China here, like at all. Um, so it's like very new to me. And so I got really obsessive with making sure I ate really healthy and making sure I went to the gym just like every single day. Um, and then that kind of spiraled into uh, my summer after freshman year. I ended up staying on campus for a summer internship. And because the internship was only part-time, I had a lot of time on my hands to do whatever I wanted. So I downloaded my fitness pal again. And I was like, okay, like, let's go back to this. I'm gonna try this again, like, it should work. And um, at that point, like, I really wanted to reach a certain goal weight. Just disclaimer, like, so, just like for some numbers involved. Um, I was like 63 kg my entire life. Um, and then I got in my head, like, I really, really, really want to reach 60 kg because like, according to BMI, I was overweight at 63, um, and obese. So I was like, okay, like, let's let, let me challenge myself to like lose a little bit of weight. And then, so once I downloaded my fitness pal again, and I had so much time on my hands, um, I was just meticulously counting calories, counting how much I was exercising every single day. And it got to the point where I bought a food scale and I would measure my food to the exact gram so I could count in my fitness pal the exact number of calories I was eating. And then um, before I slept, I would think about what I'd be eating the next day and I would plan it in my phone because I would, I would know what the cafeteria offered the next day. So I'd be like, okay, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get this amount. Like, I'm going to have this today. Like, it will reach my protein level. And like, I'm doing like a really, really hard session at the gym tomorrow. Like, maybe I'll eat more of this. Um, so I would just like plan my meals ahead of time, at least a day in advance. Um, and so my entire summer, I was so focused on food. Food became my life, basically. My life revolved around food and like going to the gym and trying to reach that goal. I didn't know how toxic it was until I ended up losing my period and once that happened I was like shoot like I really did something bad to my body that was a little bit of a wake-up call for me I also got like a lot of other symptoms where when 
um, you would be like under eating, like such as like, I would be just very, very cold all the time. Um, like a lot of my hair would be falling out as well. Um, and then I also just had like no sexual drive, like zero interest in anything. Um, so all those symptoms, like, but the one that really, really stuck to me was like me losing my period because I knew how important that was um, to my health and everything. So after that, I, I like went to a therapist and I also sought out like a dietitian as well, just because I was struggling so much with food and like my entire brain was just food, food, food. Like, what am I going to eat? Like, should I eat less today? Should, do I deserve to eat today? Like, will I exercise tomorrow? Like, if I don't exercise tomorrow, I don't want to eat that much. It's just like so very, very obsessive. Um, and I ended up getting diagnosed with bulimia. So specifically like exercise bulimia. Um, and that, that made me like, I think once that happened and alongside like when I lost my period, I think that was like a very, very big wake up call for me. Um, and I decided after that, that I, I just, I need to get my period back. So I would, I started like eating a lot, a lot. And during that time I gained, I gained so much weight and it made me so uncomfortable, but I knew that like I had to, or else like my body was basically deteriorating. Um, and as I was going through that and I started, I ended up getting my period back like after six months. So that was good. Um, but those thoughts in my head, like those obsessive thoughts about food kept arising um, and it also got really bad when I went to study abroad last semester in Panama. Um, and I went, when I came back home because of COVID in Shanghai, I started getting those obsessive thoughts around exercise again, just like constantly wanting to not allowing myself to eat if I didn't go, go to the gym. And that was my rule for myself. If I didn't go to the gym, I wasn't allowed to eat that much that day. And it, it took me so long to just really finally realize that I deserve food no matter what and just being alive <laughs> you deserve to eat <laughs> um there is not one day where you don't deserve to eat and deserve to nourish yourself um so I I am very very glad that I am at this mental state now but it's been a very long journey um I would say I've definitely had those ups and downs for sure um, but I think it takes time, it takes learning, it takes patience as well, just like forgiving yourself as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's been a roller coaster. It's been multiple years, multiple years of healing, but in the end, yeah, <laughs> we are, we are good. Erin, first of all, thank you for sharing such a personal story. I mean, I'm getting very teared up because a lot of the stuff that you're saying doesn't necessarily re resonate specifically with me, but I definitely know as a female growing up just in America that there's so many um, stipulations as to what people think are ideal and perfect and that striving towards those things. And so as I'm, as I usually do, by the way, for people watching, I'm putting my head down because I'm scribbling things that I'm in no particular order. I just want to at least address. And then Trisha, I'll go to you to ask your, your side of things and how your experience maybe was different or similar. But first of all, that's a 10 year journey for you. Seventh grade is about 12 years old or so. So that's yeah. when I'm first starting for you. That's, that seems incredibly young, but that is actually 
about three years older than the average uh, than the average year for females where we start seeing patterns like that develop. So we're talking nine or 10 years old. That's a very young age for you, Erin, at 12. You know, it's mm -hmm. not like it makes it any better that that happened to you later in life. But the fact that it took you 10 years to really not necessarily even recover. I mean, because it sounds like you still do have some triggering issues that might happen, but at least you recognize them now, it sounds like, and that you also have some strategies put in place for that. And so one of the things I was writing down here too, for those of us in the health and wellness field, especially with people who are working with um, competitive sports, right? So team sports or, or whatever kind of athletic stuff you're doing, there's something called the female athletic triad. It's now called, oh gosh, I can't remember. They, they've termed it something else, R-E-D-S. I can't remember what it stands for. But in that in that, in those group of symptoms, the three symptoms that include in the, F, you know, the, the female athlete triad are amenorrhea. So that's the stopping of your menses cycle, right? So you don't get your period anymore. An, uh, an actual eating disorder, either recognized or unrecognized. And osteoporosis too, because what's happening is your body is being depleted of body fat, like not just weight in general, like body composition, but body fat. And then also the, the wearing away of your bone mass and muscle mass and body fat plays a huge role in hormonal production. So it makes sense that when you're, you're getting that far down to an extreme weight loss where the body fat then also starts to be depleted, that no longer can your hormones be created properly. So I'm really glad that you ended up turning that around. I mean, again, it sounds like your journey was almost, you know, in a compensatory way, like making up for lost time to get you back to what would be considered a quote unquote, like normal weight for yourself. But the fact yeah. that you did that to move towards that direction and some of the other things to hear the, the, the fact that there are compensatory behaviors to pay attention to. So for anyone watching this, you know, if you yourself are going through something like this, or you're watching somebody who is close to you and you notice what exactly what Erin said, like, I don't deserve to eat unless I burn it off in some way, or I track so specifically that I can't go one calorie over or that there's this obsessive measuring things. Um, and I'll talk a little bit too, after Trisha's done explaining her side of her, her history of, um, you know, my concerns about the dietetics profession of being a dietitian that is not necessarily qualified to work with people in that specialist type of way of what I'm, I'm kind of concerned about. So forever, you know, for whoever's watching this, wherever um, you're coming from, whether you are part of the dietetics field or a student or someone working in healthcare in particular, I hope that a lot of this stuff gives you some, no pun intended, food for thought in that case. Okay, so Trisha, do you want to share a little bit too about your side of things? And also, I know you both want to um, also tell us about the actual history or how perhaps being in an Asian culture, like what, what role that does play. And I'm happy to also share the Italian side of things just to compare and contrast, but I want to get your history first. I think in my case, um, my family dynamic has definitely played a big role because my dad was, my dad came home every night, but he was often at work all day. So I spent a lot of time with my mom. I don't know what, uh, how she grew up, but she was very, very obsessed with how she looked. And I know that she went through um, a significant weight loss earlier on in her life that kind of made her think that this is the way I have to keep things. And in that same vein, I think she also tried to make sure that I stayed at a certain weight all my life. And uh, growing up when I would lose or gain weight, she would always make comments about that. And there was a point in eighth grade when she would tell me every single day that I had to lose weight. 
even though I was a normal weight. And that really got to me, I think. And uh, around ninth grade, I started to really restrict what I ate because at the time I was dealing with depression and I felt like this was my last resort to trying to make myself happier. And that backfired, obviously. Um, but in the beginning, especially, I was very much like just restriction, exercise, nothing else. Um, and I remember my sleep schedule was really messed up because I was drinking so much tea to try to keep myself full and have energy. And um, when I didn't drink tea, I would just sleep 15 hours a day. And then when I was up for three hours, um, I would then blame myself for eating like three cashews. <laughs> um, and that got really bad for a while and I lost a lot of weight. And um, what was really hard for me was that I think unlike a lot of people who struggle with eating disorders, I knew that I had a problem. I think I didn't want to acknowledge outwardly that I had a problem, but I kind of knew that no one was gonna vouch for me unless I do that for myself. So I did try to speak to people at school um, or someone I saw about it, but I just felt like I was never taken seriously for whatever reason. I was underweight, so I don't know why even though I was underweight, I wasn't taken seriously. And um, when you have an eating disorder, your eating disorder convinces you that you're making it all up and you're not actually dealing with anything and your problems are all in your head and it's not a big deal. So I think being ignored by professionals just made that worse. So that, that started in ninth grade and then in 10th, 11th, 12th grade, up until the first few years of college, I started to purge. I would not really binge I would just purge um, because that felt like my way of not only getting rid of food but also it felt like cleansing in a weird way because I felt like I was purging all the negativity away and I just felt so light afterwards and I was addicted to feeling weightless basically it really significantly impacts how you can have functional relationships in your life. And I didn't have very many friends in high school because I didn't know how to talk to people because I forgot what it was like to be a teenager and hold a conversation with people. So I would just kind of re retract to my hole <laughs> and keep staying in that cycle. And I tried to change my behaviors many, many times over the years, but I always failed because I didn't have support and I was not taken seriously. And when I did have a therapist, they would always want to talk about the depression side of things, but they wouldn't really want to talk about the eating part. And that never really got addressed. And so I would be trying to go on uh, whatever calorie thing is out there and try to make a meal plan for myself. Like I have to at least eat 1200 calories today or else it's not good. Um, but I would always fail because I would not stick to it because part of recovering is to let go of that obsession, but I can't let go when I'm trying to make myself a meal plan. Um, and so for me, recovery was very, very, very slow, much slower than it needed to be. And uh, I hope that people watching this realize that it doesn't have to be that way and that 
it, it, there's nothing wrong with asking for help. It just makes your life easier. It doesn't mean that you can't do it on your own. Like you're doing the work. It's just, this is work you don't have to do. Thank And thank you, Trisha. I mean, this is very emotional for me just to even listen to all of your, both your stories because I'm so sorry that you had to go through all of that, especially at such a young age. And what Trisha, you mentioned too, that I wrote down, you know, relationships. So who you feel safe with, who's not taking you seriously too, that was an issue for me as well. And the people that you would normally maybe go to to ask for help weren't necessarily on your side. So um, Aaron, do you mind also addressing some of that too? Like, you know, if you don't mind, if you want to share on this, the discussion about communicating with your with your parents or your family members, and then the discussion about also the healthcare professionals or even just authority figures in your life, like maybe teachers or, you know, anyone who you can go to to consider an authority figure in that way, whether they were a healthcare provider or not. Um, tell us a little bit about your successes or challenges in that, because again, you know, I also want to tie into the culture component here too, of what is expected for you. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so like Trisha, I definitely grew up around my mom making very, very um, common weight comments. Um, just regarding, because I, I grew up very sports, like sport-centered. I would, I would play a lot of sports. And when I um, entered high school, I started playing rugby. Um, and she would just basically say, don't do that because you're going to be too muscular. And girls aren't supposed to be muscular. They're supposed to be like fragile and like dainty and like skinny, skinny and white. Like the whitening is very, very big in China. Um, just like the fact that I was tan as well, she would make comments on my skin color, just be like, you're too dark. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm sure Trisha can relate. Um, but yeah, it's just like the fact that I grew up around sports a lot. Um, she would just like frown upon it because I would just like be gaining, my shoulders were too broad, yet she signed up, signed me up for swim classes my entire life and then I would go to tennis she'd be like your arms are getting too big or like I go to ballet and then she'll be like your legs are getting too big um so it's like no matter like how my body was changing even when I lost my period and I lost weight um she'd be like why why are you still so fat um that would also just be something she would say to me the first time she saw me after college um and it just it just really hurt because it's like you haven't seen your parents and like a semester it's like four months three months and the first thing they say to you is why have you got him fat and I'm like oh, is there anything else you can say to me <laughs> um but yeah it's just like those those comments this constant long like always always I grew up around it not only from my mom but also from my relatives um and I would definitely say like tradition plays a very big role in it because I used to ask my dad, I'm like, why, why does aunt, like auntie and uncle always comment on my weight and like my face shape? And my dad's like, oh, it's just like talking about the we uh, weather in Western culture. It's just like conversation, it's like easy conversation. You just talk about how like someone got skinny or fat, like it's, it's conversation. Um, but it, it gets to the point where like you start, like as you are more exposed to it, you start really believing it like oh I am fat then you know like my face is too big like they keep saying my face is getting bigger every year like maybe it is um and then like when you say that these comments are hurtful they just like brush it off and be like oh they're just joking it's fine like mom's just joking when you when she calls you fat it's okay like you don't have to take it so seriously um and it's, it's like invalidating how I feel basically and like how we feel um so it's very very frustrating for sure 
um and <laughs> when um and and along the lines of like professionals um when I lost my period I went to a gynecologist just to, like check up like make sure I was like okay and I I knew in the back of my head it was from dieting and I told her I was like yeah like I lost a bit of weight like I went from like 63 to 60 and she's like oh that that's not a lot that's not a lot of weight and I was like wait but like <laughs> that's not a lot of weight yet my body obviously says it is a lot if I've lost my period which is a very big very big health problem um so again like invalidating my experience invalidating my feelings um so those those comments just it's it's really it's it's really tough just growing up around them constantly around you um just being bombarded not only by your immediate family but also your distant family your relatives um also just social social media which i think we can get into a bit later on but it's it is a very big um part in asian culture i would say thank you for that and trisha what about you on your side there too because i know we you know you're now working with me in some respects too so you're seeing a lot of different sides of the dietetics field and the profession and that especially in um the more modern generation of dietitians we are approaching the acknowledgement of like body positivity no body shaming as a matter of fact like shut your mouth about anything having to do with anything unless somebody asks for your opinion and you know not not determining your worth by your weight like you know and also on our end too we're trying to much like um Aaron just said too we're trying to also encourage if not insist upon healthcare providers paying really close attention of how they even approach weight discussions. You know, uh, like Erin, you had that um, specific example of about saying how much you lost and the person kind of like brushing that off. And then we get the other side of things where someone is comfortable with their weight, whatever it is, and don't even get me started on BMI and how insignificant that, that should be. But the fact that they are comfortable with who they are, go in for a cold or a broken elbow, and then immediately get told that they should be losing weight. So in your case, it was dismissed. And in other person's cases, it's like, that's not what I came in here for. And why are you forcing that upon me? So Trisha, could you um, speak a little bit about that too? Not just the, the generational things, you know, not uh, how, for lack of a better word, insensitive, you know, a culture might be for someone who is dealing with this particular issue of having disordered eating patterns or eating disorders being actually diagnosed. And then again, treating it like, oh, what's the big deal? That's just how we are, whether it's generational or cultural or gender related too. Can you speak a little bit about that? Obviously in Asia, eating disorders are not talked about nearly as much as here even though it's still under talked about here and people are struggling a lot with that but there's no talk about it in the media or you don't learn about that in school at all um but i think it's also different that you know people who grew up entirely in asian culture um it's kind of they were kind of raised to brush these off like oh it's not really about you it's about us not having something else to talk about or it's just small talk but when you're raised like partly in american culture you're given this idea that if you're struggling with anything you should talk about it and you should be taken seriously and so you do and you're not taken seriously and you go like oh wait but that's not how it's supposed to go <laughs> And um, 
that makes it challenging for us because we there, there's no manual for how to navigate Asian American life and how this is supposed to play out. And, you know, I think it'd be interesting if a group of third culture kids got together and wrote about like, how do you navigate things like talking to your parents and getting them to understand, like, I know this is not how you're raised, but this is important to me. But also I don't want to not acknowledge the fact that I have to be sensitive about your considerations as well. And I think that's why education about and awareness about culture is also important among medical professionals, because I think it's pretty universal. Like no one likes to be fat shamed (laughs) in the medical community. And um, when you, like you said, when you go into an appointment, like if you have a broken leg, it's not the weight's problem. It's someone bumped into you, you know? Um, And we are seeing that I think medical professionals are trying harder to pay more attention to how they address something, but most doctors are just not trained in nutrition or any of this stuff. So it's it's rough. That that is definitely something that's coming up a lot. I mean, I think if anything of being somewhat locked in last year, gave us all a lot of time to reflect whether it was good or bad thoughts and stuff. And so one of the things I'm, I was writing down too is like the wokeness of everyone nowadays, you know, how <clears throat> we are perhaps in a more open society in this generation, like in this time of, you know, in our era versus 40, 50, 100 and something years ago. But yet I can, I think the things that you were both talking about, about that word sensitivity, right? So being sensitive to someone else's feelings, I think that definitely brought some of my own experiences up that I used to remember my father, especially, who was very adamant and domineering in the family, you know, dynamic. He was, you know, what I say goes type of thing that I remember going to therapy and that 19, 20, 21 years old and being taught how to speak to somebody who doesn't necessarily want to be spoken to of like, you know, when you say X, I feel Y, let's have a conversation about that. And instead of him, you know, saying, while yes, daughter, I'm completely open. What do you need to know? And I'm happy to make some changes to make you feel more comfortable. It was, why do you need to be so sensitive? I'm just saying things like, what's the big deal? And so it felt very dismissive and like, you know, invalidating as you guys were saying as well. And so how do we rectify, I don't know, there's not an answer to this, but how do we rectify wanting to be, because we were probably all raised to be respectful to our superiors, to our authority figures, and be respectful to them, the obligation that we have to love within our family, but then also to be like, I got to dissociate from this crap because it is killing me. Like it is literally making me deteriorate in some way, whether it's mentally or physically, that I'm not being listened to. So, you know, you can't force someone to want to change their own behaviors or be be awake too open to be that because again, they have their own issues going on. So I appreciate the fact that we, you know, we kind of disclaimed that in the beginning. These are all our own experiences. We're not necessarily shaming any particular culture, but holy hot dang, you know, it would be lovely if people could just let their guard down a little bit and be open to communicating, especially with their kids, like how they don't even recognize the amount of therapy we've all been through in the past decades, just to undo the damage that was done back then, if we could have come together to some sort of understanding. So again, I'm, I'm just saying words just because I'm acknowledging and validating both of your experiences and trying to understand how that also relates to my own my own progression through the, through the ages. I mean, I've come to the point where I just, you know, I just stopped 
he's since passed, but I've, I just stopped talking to my parents for things. I just went to like other people who I thought of as parental figures, but there was, was a, a really big hole in my heart for having to let go of that relationship because that's where I lived. Those are the people I went to see all the time. So, um, you know, you kind of find family, I guess, where it is, and you look for answers with people who are a little bit more sensitive to that. And in the same case, too, for anyone watching this, or even ourselves, you know, you don't have to sit there and listen to a healthcare provider tell you things that don't sound right. Go find someone else, even if it's, you know, I can't, my insurance doesn't cover it. Your insurance has a directory of people. Try to find someone who works with you or might work on a sliding scale to accommodate your uh, your you know your budget so that you don't have to feel so shamed and neglected in that way. Um, so let's go back to a couple of other things here because we we did have some notes that we wanted to cover too. You know, as far as like the um, lack of understanding of mental health, like let's talk about that too. It is it is somewhat stigmatized or taboo. You know, so what what happens there, right? What how do we rectify the older generation, whatever they went through, and kind of brushing that off, and the and the newer generation, how would you, Erin, if you were if you were with somebody now who was younger than you and you were acting as a role model to them, how might you make them feel more comfortable in, in being okay with sharing and saying like, you know, there are people out here who want to listen to you. Are there any resources too that maybe you found that worked for you that you want to share? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with just just listening and just like not being dismissive of everything because um, I'm just like thinking like a lot of my experiences with mental health struggles, um, namely like depression, anxiety. Um, a lot of the time I would reach out to people or go to my school, go to my parents and they'd be like, you're just making it up. Like you're fine. You're fine. But obviously I was struggling. So I think a really big, a really big um, important factor is just like have listening ear being understanding and compassionate um like validating someone else's feelings is is so so important just like making sure they feel heard is something I think um can be very helpful um and obviously if if you have the resources um connect them to whatever help they can get um I would say in Shanghai I have been to um community center Shanghai um that was like my first in-person therapist in Shanghai and um, the person I saw was very, very helpful. Um, that is, a, that's definitely a resource you can find here. Um, I haven't really looked anywhere else, but I definitely think it's very hard actually. Like therapy here is, it's, it's not a common thing. Like no one really talks about going to therapy. There's a, there's a word in Chinese called shenjingbing. Um, and people use that, like the exact translation is you have a mental health problem, but my parents and other people have used that to call call a bad name someone like you call someone a bad name and you say that to someone if they are being crazy um so that word is associated with being crazy like the entire mental health like it's 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 very very like it's very untouched um people don't really understand it i would say it's definitely more common within the younger generation to talk about it but it's almost as if like it doesn't exist um, within like the older population. Um, right, right. Yeah. That's a really good point too. Like, like that's, you know, I think that's the terms that we tend to use. Oh, you're bipolar or she's acting crazy. And you're like, okay, hold on a second. Cause there might really be a mental health issue there. So let's not, 
make it so like, uh, you know, let's not try to negate the fact that something might really be going on underneath. Perhaps they do have an issue like that. Trisha, for you too, I mean, just listening to both of your stories, it sounds like you both recognized there was an issue. Like nobody had to tap you on the shoulder and say, uh, something's going on here. What's happening? In, in fact, it was almost like they were like, oh, yay, you know, plotting that you are looking better by being thinner. So can you talk a little bit about that too, as how you became aware, much like maybe some other people might not be aware, what might be some of the um, factors that you would look at if you were sharing your story with somebody and maybe, you know, trying to be sensitive to what they're going through to gently encourage them to look within if they might be struggling with something or, you know, there's certain things that are somewhat similar in the disordered eating world that sound, um, you know, that sound like a red flag to people for us to look out for if we want to gently encourage somebody, you know, I think you might have an issue without overstepping the bounds. As we talk more about uh, mental health issues, what we come to realize is wording is especially important. Like, how you say something to someone, especially someone who's struggling, is what makes all the difference. You could discourage them from ever talking about it again or driving them further into their behaviors, or you can nudge them to question like how they're doing without directly saying you need help. I think that's what therapists try to do, right? They don't really tell you to do anything. They dance around it and they get you to think about it by asking you a ton of questions. Um, and in the same vein of wording, I think one issue with um, mental health in China is that kind of like how Aaron said, all of the illnesses that are official names in Chinese, they have some sort of connotation to them. Like Alzheimer's is just technically someone's name, right? It's the guy who discovered it or labeled it or coined it. But in, in Chinese, for example, um, Alzheimer's would be like, you're just terrible at remembering things. Or um, anorexia would be, you hate food and that's all it is. Or bulimia would be, you're just greedy and you want to eat a lot of food. People don't have an option to call it something else because the words don't exist. And what I learned about um, wording when it comes to this from 1984, actually, the book 1984 is that if a word doesn't exist in your vocabulary, it doesn't exist as a concept in your head. So if this concept is only tied to this connotation and you don't have a neutral way to address it, then that is how your brain sees it. And that's, that's how it functions in your vocabulary and your society. So I think a lot of these disorders have to be renamed. And this is how you get people to think about it a bit differently. And it would sound a lot less taboo for people to talk about it and maybe even reach out for help. And what I'll say to the people around someone who's struggling, who want to urge them to get help is that you can't force someone to get help even if they're dying and their heartbeat is 27 per minute you can't force them you can't force them to do anything it's you have to encourage them and make sure that they know resources are there non-judgmental resources are there if they need it and you know ask them questions to nudge them into thinking about am I actually doing okay Right. And I think that speaks to you like, oh, I don't want to be nosy and I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable, but you can say, I'm just, I'm just maybe concerned. Something seems to be a little bit different about you just in case you, you know, are 
are open to it, I'm here to talk or I'm here to give you some resources and say it in a very gentle way. You know, but you, you bring up some profound points there about the wording and the language of how things are translated or not translated to a more gentler, softer way. It's almost like it's your fault for not having control over something. And so now we're shaming you because of that. Like I have no control over rem remembering things. And that's, you know, stupid of you to not be able to remember stuff. Meanwhile, you're like, no, I have like a disease in my brain or, you know, this is just wear and tear of the body. Like I have no control over stopping that from happening. So that's a really interesting. And like I said, a profound thing too, of, of how just tying in that 1984 discussion, you know, which back then used to be a futuristic concept. And now here we are, you know, 30 something years past it. And, uh, and, and it's still quite relevant in some of the concepts that it brings up for anybody who's not read it highly recommended or go watch the movie. It's just as good. Um, Trisha, is there anything else that we haven't yet touched upon on some of the things that maybe you wanted to point out as far as, you know, whatever differences, the Americanizing of things and how, you know, uh, different, different cultures are as far as that's concerned or anything that you wanted to maybe ask us that are on here that we didn't necessarily cover? I guess this point is more so speaking to the, the Asians who grew up in America who have immigrant parents, but are otherwise surrounded by American people and American culture is that when you're trying to change your diet or eat healthier, your parents think you're abandoning the culture and you wanna ditch them. That's not really the point. People who work in healthcare can do a better job of including other cultures' foods in there, but also when you're 16 and you don't know what you're doing and you're confused and all you can find is what you can find, it's not about your parents, it's about like what you're trying to figure out, kind of tying into making it harder for people to speak up in Asian culture. I think this whole idea of especially women have to be a certain way and have to behave a certain way, tying to what you were saying to Dina, as long as we're talking about women needing to be a certain way, women needing to marry rich or <laughs> get married at all, or that, um, they don't have to make a living for themselves as long as they can lean on a man. Like as long as that's in place, women will always feel like they're a commodity or they are someone else's and not someone. It's, it's a big topic because a lot of how we think about things has to change for this whole situation to improve, but we tackle one thing at a time. We start I was going to say, right. Those concentric circles I always talk about start with just educating who who's around you. Yeah. You start with, um, for example, renaming the diseases, it's a bunch of doctors get together and rename them. It's not that difficult. <laughs> Although I know it's going to take some time for people to start adopting it. I think they already changed the name for Alzheimer's, but no one uses it because it's new and people like attaching it to something they know. Right. You know, you speak there about a lot of things because it also reflects on a person's individual ability to grasp concepts, be open to change themselves, right? Like, oh, I just call it the way it is that I always used to call it. I'm like, well, that's not acceptable anymore, or that's politically incorrect, or like, we know better now not to use certain terms. And so, you know, it's easier for you just to stop saying that than it is for me to rearrange my mental health disorder to accommodate what you want to label me as. So that's not like, don't you see the difference there? So I think also, um, perhaps again, for anyone who is watching this, who do, who have, you know, family members, people in their circles who are still kind of like a little bit obstinate about those things, um, you know, talking them into is not easy, but giving examples of why it could be hurtful might 
tug at a different heartstring there. I mean, I remember my mom with the whole Confederate flag and all this stuff. She was like, but there, there's statues and it's history. I'm like, imagine you are walking down the street and every day you're passing your abuser and he was supposed to be put in jail and he's not. Instead, he's across the street giving you the finger. So imagine that. Okay, now, how would you feel about that? It's not that you're friends with that guy and you never had that experience with him because he's your buddy. It's about that he was hurting that other person across the street and she's got to watch him flip him her the bird every day. So she was like, oh, I, I get that. So it put it in a way that detaches them from what they think their experience is to how understanding a more global sensitivity issue. I think that's helpful. And Trisha and also Aaron too, what you were talking about, the cultural sensitivity thing, you know, again, in the class that I teach, that's something that's very big, you know, trying to detach from this, what we call like the Eurocentric approach of things, slapping the Mediterranean diet on everything, telling people you can't eat rice when rice is a staple food everywhere you know instead gently encouraging people let's see what might you might be missing from your diet or let's see how active physically active you're being and um maybe that's an issue or getting you to stop smoking and maybe drinking alcohol so excessively let's start with those things versus stripping people away from thinking that what they do naturally by nature in traditional ways is wrong like that's not okay to do that so um again i i'm not gently encouraging doctors I, i'm telling you sh shut up just shut up when it comes to food just be quiet don't say anything don't shame anybody send them off to a dietitian or a specialist that understands that specialty right i promise not to perform heart surgery on anyone if you don't tell people how to eat that's my deal so aaron what about you is there anything else that we might not have gone over that you want to share anything else that's um, you know, thoughts, messages that you want to get out there. Oh, go ahead, Trisha, Trisha, go ahead. I did want to ask Erin if she could talk about something. Um, we had previously talked about how, you know, in the same vein of like Asian Americans um, going to school, having one culture and set of expectations and then going home and that being completely different. How has the language barrier <laughs> affected you? <laughs> I know that you know, at least for me, in school, I was encouraged to talk about everything. At home, I'm encouraged to talk about what's for dinner and how was school and not about how I feel or anything like that. So I literally don't have the vocabulary to talk about it. Yeah, I think I think that's a really big, big point. Um, I, I can't, I don't know how to talk about my feelings in Chinese and my parents only speak Chinese. <laughs> Um, and so that's, that's that's definitely a very, very big issue, I would say. Um, not only the culture barrier, but the language barrier is very, very big. Um, I, I remember, like, I would try to go to my mom, basically, and tell her I have an eating disorder. Um, this is something wrong with me. But I would <laughs> I use Google Translate, and I was like, what is eating disorder in Chinese? because I really did not know how to say it and I couldn't just go up to her and be like hey like I have an eating disorder she would just like look at me and be like what like what are you saying <laughs> so um yeah like the language barrier is huge like like Trisha, Trisha, Trisha said sorry um at school like I would be seeing a therapist on the side in college of course about my eating I would tell um her everything um was seeing a dietitian as well trying to get a good meal plan and then back home it's like completely like scrapped like not calling that anymore like we're we're eating what's set on the table and um you have no choice basically <laughs> um and when you talk when you try to talk to your parents about it or like why 
why I have a food scale at home. Like why I brought my food, food scale back because I'm measuring calories. Like I had no way to express like why I was doing it because I, I didn't have the vocabulary for it. Like you said, Trisha. Like um, literal words you're saying. Like you said, you yeah, had to actually put it to Google Translate. There's no word for that. <laughs> yeah that's that's really interesting <laughs> yeah it's it's pretty funny now I think of it because it's just like the fact that like I was I I remember distinctly like trying to go up to my mom and be like hey like I lost my period and I lost my period because I was dieting and because I was dieting so much I have an eating disorder now and this is the eating disorder and I just had to write everything in Google Translate <laughs> Well, I think that speaks volumes then just how the older generation or just the non-American population can't, can't literally understand what you're saying because there is no understanding of that. There is no translatable phrase or word for that. So it's almost like you have to teach them the concept of this is what that means. Do you understand the meaning of illness or mental health or whatever, um, however, to define it? That is so that's such an interesting thing, not just, not just, you know, I mean, conceptually, but like literal language that's used. I didn't even think of that. And also there are some phrases that make sense in English. And while you can translate it into another language, it sounds stupid. So when you're trying to confess that you have such horrible feelings about yourself, and then it comes out sounding stupid, you're discouraged from ever talking about it again. Right. I was going to say, those are like idiomatic expressions in a way, like you mentioned before, the literal translation of Alzheimer's and, and certain things as far as mental health. And I'm thinking, I remember conversations with my mom about in Italy, there are different dialects in different regions. And so what one person, you know, just for an example, one person's word for mountain is someone else's word for ocean. And imagine having a conversation where you're like, you what you can't swim in a mountain what are you talking about like just the the lack of understanding in communicating in a language that you both know but is different in dialect and so um that that is a huge also you know communication factor to take into account not just for those of you within your own population but for those of us outside of it to then you know what if you brought your mom to a therapy session and we were trying to figure out how to make her a part of your journey like that would just you know, that would be very confusing for everyone in the room. So it's almost like, you know, what are the options there? Then you have to end up driving solo to your destination of healing because there's no possible way you can get that other person in the car in that, in that, in that uh, metaphor that I'm using there. That's very, very interesting. Um, Trisha, is there anything else before? I wanted to launch in a little bit into like the professional side of things too, when it comes to the specializing. And so before I do, is there anything else that you wanted to cover? What was your experience like with food and the home life? Well, home life was interesting. My mom and dad, like I said, they were immigrants. So my mom came over to America when she was very young. She was only nine and she integrated pretty quickly into like American society, even though at home she had to still deal with very traditional old world ways. My dad, he was a teenager and he couldn't get a visa to America. So he had to go to South America first. So he worked on um, he worked like tilling the soil. He worked as a farmer down there. And then from that direction, he ended up coming up to North America. So by the time he actually landed in like, you know, New Jersey, he was about 23 and my mom was about 21 or so at that point. And so she had already become like Americanized having been here since nine years old. And that's when they met, you know, like I was saying, my dad was very domineering. Like I still understand the old world ways of being a man in the family. And so when we grew up, we had, I mean, there were good and bad things, you know, so I'll give credit where credit is due. My dad was the OG. He was the original gangster 
gardener and we had a garden in the back and I learned about food and cultivating things and eating a tomato fresh out of the, the you know, off the vine. And um, he taught me how to grill food on the grill. Like, I mean, he was very handsy like that. We worked downstairs and we did like hardware things. Like he would always be building these random things. Everything in our house was custom made. So I really enjoyed stuff like that. But because of understanding where they came from, you know, they all escaped the war. Like everybody went running in the middle of the night to escape the um, the infiltration of you know Mussolini and the Nazis coming in from that direction as well and taking over and blowing up the town and stuff. So they had a lot of issues to deal with, no food, etc. So they made it very, very um, a priority of valuing food, valuing the dollar. And so I, uh, you know, we term it now being part of the clean plate club. So you couldn't necessarily leave the table unless you were done eating. But you know, when I reflect upon that, I'm like, well, I was six and you're giving me a mountain of pasta and vegetables and I don't even like the taste of lima beans. And, you know, why am I being force fed to eat all the stuff that my tiny little stomach can't handle? And meanwhile, they're thinking, you know, don't waste anything. There are people starving in this world. And I'm like, well, then give it to them. You know, I'm, I don't want to eat anymore. So I definitely think that played a role just as far as waste goes and not recognizing portion control. Like, you know, I would just pile things on my plate and think I'd have to eat everything versus, oh, I gave myself too much. And it's okay if I toss this out, unfortunately, or put it aside for leftovers for the next day. Like that was kind of unheard of. The other thing too, is we were uh, again, because we were not necessarily Americanized in that way of uh, like bagels and, you know, different kinds of cold cuts, like we didn't have stuff like that growing up. So when I was at my friends' houses or even in the cafeteria, I don't know if anybody's ever watched my big fat Greek wedding, uh, the right, that was the, the movie version of that. Um, she's at the table. I remember this distinctly, like she's the character in that movie was at the cafeteria table at a very young age, 10, 11 years old. Same thing happened to me. I was given a bag of like last night's leftovers, which was, you know, Italian bread and braised escarole and like a veal cut, like a breaded veal cutlet. It was just so greasy in a bag. And my friends are eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and bologna sandwiches. And I just felt like such an outcast. So that was another thing too. That it's not my fault that I'm bringing this traditional food to an American table. Um, and what I was going to say before about going to other people's houses where, you know, I open up the closet and like, oh, this light would come through and it's full of like Skittles and Oreos and chips and all these things that we didn't have in our house. And I was just like, Aah. so constantly eating and going home with like the biggest belly ache and never telling my parents that I had just gorged at my, my friend's house. So that's also why they were like, why aren't you eating? I'm like, cause I just ate 16 pounds of sugar at down the street. So it's, um, it's just such a weird variety of things that happened. You know, there were so many good things, but also so many not so good things too. Um, I think for me, I noticed some disordered eating patterns in myself only because of uh, the Americanized um, magazine world, you know, looking at 17 and like glamour and cosmopolitan back in the day if everybody was rail thin and everyone's going on diets of either slim fast supplement drinks or, you know, I just eat black coffee and a piece of toast and I'm gone for the day. And I was like, I want to be a supermodel. So that's the stuff that I thought was healthy. And it was so not. And, you know, again, if I look at also just body image stuff back then, how I used to say to myself, oh, I'm so fat. And I think these things are sticking out and I'm not comfortable with the way I feel and look. And then flash forward to now, I'm like, you know, in a weird way, I'm like, I didn't know how good I had it back then because, you know, I'm so much different in body composition now that I would, 
I would be berating myself if I was looking at myself back then as I am now. Like I'm much thicker. I'm I like whatever. There's I'm older, so things are starting to be in different places now too. And I'm like whatever. I don't care. I'm still alive. And um, yeah, so it was just it was a combination of a lot of things. I don't remember my mom ever being on a diet or anything. She just ate what she ate and gave no thought to it. And she's also always been a tiny person anyway. So you know she just did her thing. We were always a, not a fairly active family but we took walks after dinner because that was a very Italian thing to do as well like you socialize you gather you take walks so I definitely had some conflict in the in meeting my American friends um, we were also some well I was as the girl of the family I have a brother so we were also I was also somewhat restricted of socializing I couldn't have boys come to the house I couldn't have my friends drive up to the house I couldn't sleep over my friends my friends homes because my dad was, you have food here, you have a bed here. And I was like, yeah, but I'm also trying to be like a normal <laughs> person who can socialize. And so I was really outcasted. I found myself doing a lot of independent, isolated things, which when I look back on it now, you know, it made me who I was. But back then I was the freak. I was the one getting bullied and picked on all the time for all of these things that possibly were related to having come from an immigrant household, like very, very much outcasted. Um, I had friends who were also, you know, Italian, but they were Italian Americans. So their generations went much deeper in America's roots than mine did. Um, so they didn't understand the greasy bags of sandwiches from last night's dinner. They didn't understand any of that stuff. So it was really weird. I mean, you know, even, even now just thinking of it too, like I have one, one, friend from back then who was quite literally born around the same time I was, whose parents were friends of my parents, but no one else in my current group, my current circle is nobody from like elementary school, high school, college, no one, not a single person. Isn't that weird? So yeah. And I guess that could have been affiliated to some of the things growing up. Anything else? Any questions? I'm, I'm an open book. Very different. Would love to Very yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's really okay. interesting to hear Thank your you. story. Thanks, Erin. Yeah, I mean, again, I can go back and shame everybody and be like, you treated me this way and that way. Um, I will say since my dad passed, my mom and I have been able to talk about those things. Like she's actually listened to all of my, my podcasts. She watches these things that I do. She knows if somebody asks her, what does your daughter do for a living? She knows how to explain what a registered dietitian <laughs> is. Where my dad was like, you're going back to school to make salad. That doesn't make any sense. I'm like, that's, that's not what that is. <laughs> So she, she's very much more aware and open to, to talking about a lot of this stuff too. And she, you know, she'll admit also, like, I didn't know back then that that was the deal. So, you know, she's, she's come to um, forgive herself and I've come to forgive a lot of things too. And I think that that's also plays a role too, just in advancing who you're, you know, you are as a person of not necessarily faulting. Like, I wish they did know better. I wish I wasn't put in under those, some of those circumstances, but I also know I had it much better than a lot of other people, um, you know, as far as, uh, abusive relationships and, and uh, restriction goes. So I'm happy to have come out somewhat okay on the other end. Um, and if I can share too, you know, one of the things I wanted to bring up, as I mentioned to both of you before we started talking was in the dietetics profession, <clears throat> excuse me, for those of you who are going through it now, like those of you who are you in school who might be venturing off into the internship, understanding the role that the dietitian plays in the healthcare field, like we are specialists in food and nutrition and understanding how we can help support or manage certain chronic conditions with the different kinds of you know food therapies we provide to people. However, we get very limited 
if at all, any training in behavioral counseling, even though technically what we do is considered MNT, medical nutritionist therapy. So we think of therapy as like, oh, it's, you know, behavioral, but no, we're talking therapeutic diets, like things that can help improve your condition by providing you with a diet that is um, going to help support that, whether it's, you know, um, certain foods and fruits and vegetables or any kinds of foods that exacerbate or help uh, alleviate your, your signs and symptoms. And so the reason why I bring this up is because, you know, there is a difference between disordered eating behaviors, which quite honestly, I feel like we all have something like that. Everybody's got affected some way as a kid growing up, or, you know, we have maybe certain food preferences, or we deal with gastrointestinal problems that then cause us to be overly conscientious of what we're eating because we don't want have to have like such bad tummy issues. So there's some sort of component in that, that as a dietitian, I feel comfortable with addressing and getting to strategize with people of understanding where some changes can be made in their food behaviors. But in no way, shape or form do I ever feel comfortable working with somebody who has legitimately been diagnosed with a, an eating disorder. That is a mental health disorder from the DSM-5, like that's how you're diagnosed. And so I really think it's inappropriate for a lot of dietitians to take on that role if they have not gotten through some sort of specialist training. And it could be as simple as, um, we didn't use this word, but there is an intuitive eating uh, workshop and there's an intuitive eating certification course that people can go through where you basically, you know, ditch the diet. Like you don't focus on any weight discussions. You do not do calorie tracking. It's all just behavioral conversations of allowing your body to naturally go back to the state it was when you were a child. Like I know how much I should eat. I know what I like and I don't like instead of all the things that you're kind of having to, you know, disrobe and take the layers off of who you are as an adult now and that experience too or younger adults too. Um, there's also health at every size that a lot of us are starting to learn about too. Again, dismantling the diet culture discussion, understanding that, especially in cultures, right? So in the Asian population specifically, as Trisha and Aaron were saying for Chinese culture, you know, very, very slim, slender, lean looking body shapes are ideal, but someone in like Ghana, is going to be more robust. And so whenever anybody comes to America, you're either gonna think you're too skinny or too fat, no matter where you're starting off. And that is such a messed up thing to do to people. So, you know, even though in the cultures and the traditional sense that may or may not have been good or bad, right? Don't be so skinny, don't be so fat, like in that case, but then you also integrate Americanizing things and how what we deem as ideal, not recognizing that one of my, my biggest examples that I give in class is Lizzo, right? Granted, she's had a lot of things going on recently with some of her own uh, weight pursuits and, and things that she was doing, like cleansing and, and these like words that celebrities influencers tend to use a lot of times. But holy hot dang with that one too. She gets on a, on a stage at her size, right, we think automatically, oh, she must have diabetes or high cholesterol. Or something. She's running back and forth, playing a flute, singing, dancing. I can't even walk up two flights of stairs to my apartment without like having to sit down halfway through and catch my breath. So the mere fact that as a healthcare professional, working with other healthcare professionals, that we just take a look at someone walking in our office and immediately diagnose them as healthy or not healthy is a true disservice. So for anyone, again, anyone out there who is looking to become either a dietitian or works in the health and wellness field, you will be having interdisciplinary conversations. Do the best you can with alleviating all of that, like if there are true metabolic issues that you have to address, or if there are deficiencies in vitamins and minerals, that sort of thing, that's where we can play a role. But please just don't automatically judge or dismiss someone's 
need for validation by their body size. That is so, so not okay with me. So thank you for letting me at least share that part of my, my platform with everybody here. Um, are you guys ready to wrap up? Any, any parting words, Erin? Any final parting words that um, we might want to share or you know, next steps for people in what to take away from this conversation? Um, I would just say that um, diversity and representation definitely matters. Um, I would say this, this sector is, is it's very um, white Eurocentric and seeing people like that represent who I am basically and talking about their experiences, it makes me feel heard. It makes me feel like my experiences are valid. And I think no matter what you're going through, um, just know that there's, there's always support. There's always support that you can reach out to and if you need help in that like obviously feel free to contact me dina trisha any of us um we will be more than happy to talk to you um and either connect you to resources or just um hear about your experiences as well thank you very much trisha what about you any final parting words yes so um like aaron said i think representation is really important but um not just people on social media talking about it, but we need to get more people of color into the field and men into the field because I know that a lot of men think they can't talk about their eating behavioral issues because it's a women's issue. And maybe if we have more male dietitians that are trained in disordered eating, they would feel more comfortable talking to someone because they would get it and they would understand what kind of pressure men are under to be stoic and have no feelings <laughs> and be tough getting more diversity into the medical field so that people have more resources and support is really important and obviously keep reading keep learning and it's really important to hear from people who are from a different walk of life come from a different country have different upbringing are of a different generation and you'll learn a lot more about why people are the way they are and what makes them open or not to receiving information. Thank you so much for joining me this week on the Dish with Dina podcast. I am Dina D'Alessandro, registered dietitian, nutritionist, founder, and chief executive life changer at Dish with Dina. And I'm also your host. If you like what you heard, I would be so grateful if you could subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, and share this with others who you think might benefit from what we have to offer on these episodes. You can also join my mailing list at dishwithdina.com or email me at info at dishwithdina.com with questions, comments, feedback, and if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode because everybody eats and we all have a story to share. I hope you tune back in next week when we dish again. 